Welcome to Ganjapreneur, helping Ganjapreneurs grow and succeed in every sector of the cannabis industry. Ganjapreneur will introduce you to the cannabis pioneers who are paving the way for future generations. Learn about the shifting landscape of the market directly from the experts and get to know some of the leading minds in the industry as they tell their story of struggles and success. Now, CannabisRadio.com presents Ganjapreneur. Hi there, and welcome to the Gontrepreneur.com podcast. I'm your host, Shango Los. The Gontrepreneur.com podcast gives us an opportunity to speak directly to entrepreneurs, cannabis growers, product developers, and cannabis medicine researchers, all focused on making the most of cannabis normalization. As your host, I do my best to bring you original cannabis industry ideas that will ignite your own entrepreneurial spark and give you actionable information to improve your business strategy and improve your health and the health of cannabis patients everywhere. Today, my guest is Ethan Nadelman. Ethan Nadelman is founder and executive director of the Drug Policy Alliance, the leading organization in the United States promoting alternatives to the war on drugs. He received his BA, JD, and PhD all from Harvard and taught at Princeton University for seven years. He has authored two books on the internationalization of criminal law enforcement and has written extensively for academic policy and media publications. His many media appearances include The Colbert Report, The O'Reilly Factor, and Real Time with Bill Maher. His TED Talk on ending the drug war has been viewed over a million times. Ethan plays a key role as drug policy advisor to George Soros and other prominent philanthropists, as well as elected officials ranging from mayors, governors, and state and federal legislators in the United States to presidents and cabinet ministers outside the U.S. Welcome, Ethan. Glad you could be on the show. It's a pleasure, Shango. So, Ethan, to start out, let's get right where the heart of the matter. To the regular citizen, federal drug policy seems to evolve behind the scenes somehow, you know, being the result of smoke and mirrors and deals that all happen before we even hear about what's going on in the press. Do you think that there's a role for an individual citizen to participate in drug policy at a federal level? Well, depends what you mean by individual citizens. Individual citizens who got a billion dollars to the name, you know, have no problem participating in the process. <laughs> when it comes to ordinary citizens who don't have that kind of money, yes, there's still a way to do it. I mean, a lot of this just involves being highly knowledgeable about the issue and then being connected with the right networks or advocacy organizations so that you know when and where weighing in will make that much more difference. So, for example, was about a quarter million people signed up on Drug Policy Alliance's you know, internet communications. And what we do is let people know when a vote's coming up and when they can contact their senator or their representative on a particular bill. We'll let people know how their representative voted so that then they can send them a follow-up either to thank them or to criticize them. So it's things like that. And then, of course, there's the things like just simply showing up at candidate forums, uh, going to visit your legislator if they're accessible, things like calling up on talk radio, uh, especially the ones that have contrary opinions and offering an informed opinion. So there's always things that the ordinary citizen can do. When comparing working at the federal level versus working at the state level, we did a show recently with John Davis where we talked about going to actually sit down with your state representatives and voicing your opinion and doing so in an educated way. It sounds like doing that at the federal level, you, you almost need to be working within an advocacy group that acts as a force multiplier so that you can actually have some sort of impact in lieu of having a million dollars. Well, I mean, look, anybody can write or email or 
or call their own member of Congress or senator and get through that way. Anybody can drop by the representative's office when they're in D.C. and at least talk with a staffer. Uh, it's clear if, if somebody has a personal relationship or is one step removed from that member of Congress, it always helps to use that contact because obviously the member of Congress is going to be that much more receptive if it comes from somebody they already know or somebody who knows somebody they know. But I'll tell you something, Shango, you know, upcoming in a few weeks, or I'm not sure if it'll already happen by the time this runs, but November 18th to 21st in Washington, D.C. is the Biennial International Drug Policy Reform Conference. Conference. And the day before that conference happens, we're having lobby day when hundreds of people who are coming to the conference will show up a day early and then we're arranging for them to go meet their members of Congress during the course of that day. And that's the sort of thing that can have a very significant impact. I think it's probably a good time for us to mention to folks, too, that if they do choose to go visit their federal representatives, that they shouldn't feel slighted just because they're talking to an aide. Because more often than not, it's the aides that are helping write the position papers and are coalescing the feedback. So just because you don't speak to your specific representative, this can still be a win for whatever you want, a point you want to get across. Well, exactly. And it goes in there. One can always look on the website of Drug Policy Alliance or Marijuana Policy Project or American for safe access or normal and download the fact sheets that are on our websites and use those to make sure that you have an informed opinion and then also to give those to the, the staff as you're meeting. If you actually succeed in getting a meeting with a member of Congress, it helps to touch base with somebody at my organization. Drug Policy Alliance has the most robust lobbying operation on Capitol Hill of any drug policy reform organization. And so we're working in partnership with other groups. We're very good at motor sort of mobilizing state-based organizations as well. So, you know, the more coordination, typically the better. The great majority of our listening audience are, are cannabis entrepreneurs themselves, and some of them have already established businesses, and some of them are even looking to start doing interstate commerce. Do you think that if we were to escalate my first question about being a common citizen trying to participate, let's say instead we're talking about a business that's already making money in legal marijuana and they want to ply their cash in a way that will um, move forward their own policy objectives. Do you think that the answer becomes any different? Do you think that it's still ally yourself with a lobbying organization or are there some strategies that an individual business owner with some money to spend can do to help themselves. Well, I mean, Shango, I think it's a bit self-serving for me to say this, but by and large, somebody who's in the industry or wanting to get in the industry and wants to try to move, for example, federal legislation, the best way to do that, or state legislation for that matter, oftentimes the best way to do that, unless you have very strong and good contacts directly in the legislature, and even then, is to work with an advocacy organization like Drug Policy Alliance. And I'll give you one significant example. Last year, when we were working on the medical marijuana bill in in New York, and we'd spent an enormous amount of resources, grassroots, grass tops, mobilization, public media, behind the scenes, out front, mobilizing the patient networks, meeting with almost every legislator in the state, meeting with the governor's office, you name it, right? And what we saw was a whole host of folks in the industry went out, started hiring lobbyists for five and 10 and even more thousand dollars a month and landed up, as we heard, getting essentially nothing for their money. 
right? I mean, they were basically thought this is the way to do it, but it didn't work. Meanwhile, the ones who brought it home and shaped what the legislation was, was Drug Policy Alliance. I say the same thing coming up right now with this issue of trying to change uh, federal laws regarding the banking issue so that folks in the industry can have access to legal banking. Once again, your best investment is to invest in Drug Policy Alliance. And I realize it sounds like a fundraising pitch, but I think bottom line is it's true. And I should be very clear, DPA, Drug Policy Alliance, we do not lobby for the industry. But when our interests coincide with folks in the marijuana industry, which they do far more often than they don't, the single best investment, dollar for dollar, is putting money into Drug Policy Alliance so that we can step up our efforts on that front. So given that, is there such a thing as shopping around for a lobbying organization? I mean, obviously, people want to go with an organization that's got proven records. How do you determine to best choose a lobbying organization? Does the lobbying organization itself have its ideals and you just need to find one that falls with yours? Well, it depends. I mean, part of this is you can talk around. Look, there's a range of organizations that we work with, with Marijuana Policy Project, Americans for Safe Access, Normal, uh, NCIA, the Industry Association, a range of others. So one can just sort of do your own due diligence to find out who's doing what or who has a reputation for being more or less successful. So that's one way to do it. The second thing is that if somebody's looking to put any sort of real money into this, and by real money, I mean tens of thousands of dollars or more, then one would you know, call the organization and say, look, guys, here's what I'm interested in. Here's what affects my interests. What's the work you're doing on this? And what kind of work could you do with greater resources? That's the best way. That's great. Well, thanks, Ethan. We're going to take a short break and be right back. You are listening to the Gondrepreneur.com podcast. After a short message from the sponsors who made this show possible, Gondrepreneur will return. Hi, I'm Montel Williams. Most of you know me as a talk show host, but I'm also an author, actor, single father of four, avid snowboarder, and I'm also a medical marijuana patient. Living with multiple sclerosis, I'm in pain every day. Medical marijuana is my last resort, and it helps me when all other drugs have failed. If you'd like more information about medical marijuana, you can contact the Marijuana Policy Project at mpp.org or call 1-877-JOIN-MPP. Gondrepreneur.com, your guide to the cannabis business world. Gondrepreneur.com is a comprehensive resource for cannabis professionals and entrepreneurs. Download the Gondrepreneur app on your smartphone or tablet to catch up on cannabis industry news, scroll through our daily job listings, and learn about successful cannabis companies, executives, and investors. Gondrepreneur.com, helping Gondrepreneurs grow. Educator, author, and advocate, Dr. Mitch Earlywine is here to tackle the burning issues. And I'm here to clear up the myths about cannabis and burn them away with science. CannabisRadio.com presents a no-holds-barred platform that seeks to redefine and revolutionize the entire scope of the cannabis culture while opening the door for more to join the cannabis crusade. Dr. Kevin Hill. You can't ignore the fact that, like alcohol, most people who use don't have a problem. So I think that you need to think about policy in that way while educating people properly about marijuana. I think that's the way to go. Burning Issues, only on CannabisRadio.com. We're back to help Gondrepreneurs grow. You're listening to Gondrepreneur, only on CannabisRadio.com. 
Welcome back. You are listening to the Gontrepreneur.com podcast. I am your host, Shango Los. And our guest this week is Drug Policy Alliance founder, Ethan Nadelman. So Ethan, you know, everybody's really excited about having normalization sweep across the country. And a lot of people talk like, oh, will President Obama, you know, make the, uh, the change and, and unschedule cannabis before his time is over? Do you th- what do you think the likelihood of it happening either by congressional vote or by the sweep of President Obama's pen before the end of his time in office? I think it's scant. I mean, I, I think that by and large, President Obama has been much better than expected during his second term in office. You know, during the first term, Shango, I mean, he did one very good thing or two good, I mean, which was basically to, uh, uh, you know, to pull back on some of the federal enforcement on medical marijuana when he first came in. And then it bounced around for a while, but he's actually been pretty good in the second term. I mean, simply giving that qualified green light to Colorado and Washington to implement their legal legalization initiatives and not getting in the way then when Oregon and Alaska followed suit and basically letting foreign governments know that they're moving forward on marijuana decrim or even legalization no longer represents a challenge to U.S. national security and political interests. All of those have been, I think, quite good things. And I think that the White House and the Justice Department have been quite good in that area while we've seen a more problematic role played by the Drug Czar's Office and the National Institute on Drug Abuse and some of the other you know, administrative agencies like that. I don't think – I could see President Obama you know, issuing an edict, reducing marijuana scheduling from Schedule 1 to Schedule 2. But I'd be stunned if he were to use his power. And there's disagreement about whether he actually has the power to deschedule marijuana unilaterally. That's the subject of a bill which Senator Bernie Sanders introduced, I think, last week or announced that he was going to introduce. And my staff in Washington, D.C. have worked closely with his staff in terms of designing that bill. But I would say that come Election Day or January 2017, when Obama leaves office and we have a new president and a a new Congress, I don't think anything monumental is going to come out of Washington between now and then. Uh, I think the 2016 election, well, we'll get to that in a minute, but that's looking to shake up a lot, especially if most of those initiatives win then. And that's the same place that I was going to go. It's pretty astonishing to hear uh, presidential candidates talking about uh, cannabis at all. I mean, all the elections into my life, if there, there may have been a mention of it by Reagan back in the day uh, as far as the drug war goes. But to have uh, presidential candidates actually talking about the possibilities of implementation is really, uh, is really shocking. Um, what do you think about the civil forfeiture aspect of it? I mean, we're watching uh, so many law enforcement agents who have traditionally gotten paid by, uh, you know, essentially taking possessions that were in the homes and businesses of folks that were in cannabis and then selling that and then using that to fund their organizations. As cannabis becomes more normalized, this income is going away for these um, you know, law enforcement organizations. Do you think that it's more likely that these organizations will just shrink or do you think that they will shift and find something new to enforce so that they can start getting uh, asset forfeiture a different way? You know, it's hard to say. I mean, as, it, it, I mean, it's interesting to you raise Shango because my Drug Policy Alliance, we've been deeply involved in the issue of asset forfeiture reform. Back in the year 2000, we drafted and put on the ballot in Oregon and Utah – 
uh, two initiatives to reform asset forfeiture laws, basically to say that people could not have their property seized and kept by the state unless they'd been criminally convicted. And the second was to say that when property was legally seized, that the money had to go not to cops and prosecutors' departments, but go to the general treasury. We won both those initiatives by two to one margins back in 2000. And then they were somewhat gutted by the law enforcement lobby thereafter. Now, we've once again reengaged in this issue in a big way. It's got a lot of traction. We had a major victory in New Mexico earlier this year, almost eliminating civil asset forfeiture. I think that the cops are basically going to have to find new ways to fund their operations. I, I think that it's not going to result in any massive layoffs. I think that this money represents an important source of revenue for some police departments. It's coming not just for marijuana seizure or, or for cash related to marijuana and property, but other stuff. So I think it's a variable. I don't think it's a dominant variable in the whole debate. You spend a lot of time consulting with all sorts of different folks, whether or not whether they be in the legislature or philanthropists or or you know corporate sponsors of bills. What role do you see of cannabis money playing a role in this upcoming presidential election? It's certainly playing a big role as far as sound bites go and and getting the base excited. But to what degree is there cannabis money involved at this point? Well, I mean, it really depends. And the really place you're really seeing it is at the level of the states and at the ballot initiatives in the legislation. So you and I are talking on November 2nd, the day before Election Day 2015. So we're all waiting to see what happens in Ohio where there's a ballot initiative that would legalize marijuana if it wins. There's a counter initiative that would negate the legalization. It's an initiative which is very good in a lot of respects and which my organization helped draft, but which unfortunately includes one offensive provision, which is, which is a provision that says only the 10 investors in the ballot initiative or the, technically the properties they own will be allowed to produce marijuana commercially in perpetuity. Right. So this is the first case in Ohio where we're seeing a ballot initiative that's almost entirely funded by people within the industry, driven primarily by their interest in making a profit and most of whom don't care all that much about the broader principles. Now, you jump forward to 2016 when you're going to have marijuana legalization on the ballot in California, Nevada, Arizona, Maine, Massachusetts, maybe Michigan. You're going to have medical marijuana on the ballot, probably in Florida. Uh, uh, Missouri, maybe Arkansas, and for all I know, a couple of others could pop up between now and then. So 2016 is looking to be sort of the year, the marijuana year, the presidential election year where marijuana, you know, really hits it big. If you look around the country, you'll see that in California, there's some money coming to the table from the industry, and it's going to be in the millions of dollars. You'll see in Arizona, the marijuana industry playing a significant role. You'll see less of a role uh, in Maine right now. We're, we just were involved in getting two groups, one backed by Marijuana Policy Project, one involving local activists to develop a unity campaign so we didn't have two initiatives there. So what I would say is that 2016 will probably be the last election year when – Marijuana initiatives were driven primarily by people who were interested in this for reasons of civil rights and civil liberties and not primarily by their interest in making a profit. Come 2018 and beyond, I think that the profit seekers are going to play more and more of the dominant role. And the upside of that 
is that when it comes to putting a nail in the coffin of marijuana prohibition nationally, it means that people interested in this primarily so they can make a buck are going to land up producing a very positive social consequence. It's really interesting to listen to the national news to see some uh, uh, traditional pro-cannabis activists actually coming out against the Ohio law because it is so closed off to these 10 producers. And, you know, it's very common to read these blog articles like, you know, I'm pro-cannabis, but this uh, this setup is not going to work and to hear people talking against it. Um, how are you seeing that play out at the federal level where people uh, want to move normalization forward, but at the same time, there's some really serious questions in Ohio about the framework that they're using. Well, I'll tell you something. I mean, first of all, Shane, I'd say people who want to get a read on this thing should read the uh, op-ed piece I published on CNN.com a few days ago. Just pop my name, Ethan Nadelman, and CNN.com, and you'll find it. I kind of lay out the pros and cons of the Ohio situation and and why I'm sort of rooting for the thing to win, even though I don't like this provision in there, and also why I think we're not going to see a lot of states imitating that oligopoly model. I mean, quite frankly, the people who are upset by it are not just the traditional grassroots activists in Ohio. It's also people in the industry. You know, every, everybody in the industry likes to get a leg up by getting a government, you know, preference of one sort or another. But the notion of going to the point of actually writing into the state constitution that only the 10 investors will have the right to produce marijuana wholesale in perpetuity, I think most folks in the industry see that as simple overreach and in some respects almost un-American. I don't think that issue is going to play out that much in Washington, D.C., Capitol Hill right now. I think there what people are looking at is what's the way to allow states to experiment with their own regulatory models. I mean, we're now in a time when even the Republican candidates who are open to this are saying, look, I'm not opposed to legalization as a state's rights issue, even if they still say they're opposed to it on grounds of principle or broader policy. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. When you were saying that, the phrase that kept on being in my head was, what's going on in Ohio seems un-American. And there you were. You took the words right out of my mouth. Mm-hmm. We're going to take another short break and be right back. You are listening to the Gontrepreneur.com podcast. After a short message from the sponsors who made this show possible, Gontrepreneur will return. Your connection to quality cannabis insurance services is spelled K-A-E-R-C-H-E-R. That's Karcher Insurance. We have worked with ventures like cannabis for over 60 years. We're proud to represent over 50 companies with tailor-made cannabis plans for owners just like you to insure your product, your plants, and your pursuits. K-A-E-R-C-H-E-R spells out their full-service insurance services, ranging from commercial to bonds, to personal, from life to health, and more. Contact the team at KarcherInsurance.com and let our experience work for you. That's K-A-E-R-C-H-E-R Insurance.com. Contact Karen and the team at Karcher Insurance at 1-844-421-3560. That's 844-421-3560. MJWellness.com, the largest medical marijuana community in the world. Connect with thousands of patients, doctors, industry leaders, and businesses through shared personal experiences along our worldwide network. Discover new therapies and benefits with content tailored to you. Come grow your network on mjwellness.com. You're not alone. Your wellness matters. 
learn, live, and thrive. Check out mjwellness.com today. Cannabis Confidential with Dr. Dina. Candid. I want to give you the inside story. Captivating. I want to introduce you to my kind and amazingly talented friends. Compelling. We get to meet some of the most amazing cannabis activists and warriors around. Listen in as medical marijuana pioneer Dr. Dina shares never-before-heard stories, chats with cannabis insiders and celebrity friends, and provides invaluable perspective and insight into one of the fastest-growing industries in the world. I want to share with you what was once confidential information. Let's expose the truth, discuss the issues, and learn the facts. Cannabis Confidential, only on CannabisRadio.com. We're back to help Gondrepreneurs grow. You're listening to Gondrepreneur only on CannabisRadio.com. Welcome back. You are listening to the Gondrepreneur.com podcast. I am your host, Shango Lowe's. And our guest this week is Drug Policy Alliance founder, Ethan Nadelman. So Ethan, here on Vashon Island, where I live, we experienced a great deal of rural economic development during me- uh, medical marijuana. You know, We've had over 15 years of small mom and pop producers being able to produce a high quality, low pesticide product and move it into the dispensary market where it was then sold to patients. Now, with the passing of I-502 in our state, over the next year, all of those medical dispensaries are being phased out, the producers are going away, and the trade organization that I started here on Vashon Island, we've gone from 156 growers to five growers, and those are the five that have got licenses on our island. But all those other people, those are real families. Those are the, the money from the sale of the, the medical marijuana was going to pay for kids' field trips and the vacation and getting, getting caught up on back house taxes, all of these things. Do you see there being any chance with the changes at the federal level to start to include those type of artisan, simple family growers again? Or do you think the writing's on the wall that that heavy capitalized interests are going to take over like they did with liquor? Uh, gotcha. Shango, it's a great question. And I have to say it's the most bittersweet aspect of the advocacy I've been involved in for, for decades now. You know, on the one hand, we always knew that when you get to the point of full legalization of marijuana, it was going to involve something that was going to look like the alcohol or tobacco or, or, or consumer goods companies with major players ultimately dominating. I mean, we live in America. It's a society of you know, a dynamic capitalist culture. It, it's very hard to sort of write in protections for the smaller growers into all of this. So, you know, and now, of course, we're dealing with that reality. And especially you guys in Washington State are dealing with that reality. So there, I don't know much we can do about it. That said, my organization is morally committed to doing whatever we can. So what we've tried to do is to try to, when we have influence over the drafting of initiatives, to write in some provisions that at least lower the barriers to entry, that allow small growers to have a chance to compete, and also trying to write into these initiatives that people who ever suffered a felony conviction because of their involvement in the marijuana industry will not be excluded. So those are the small things we can do. But the toughest part about this in a way is that if you think about it, there's a coincidence of interests between 
the biggest players in the industry who have the money mostly to get their way and the people in government who are going to be charged with regulating the new industry. And from their perspective, it's easier to regulate a small number of large entities than a large number of small entities. And the third factor which makes it difficult is that the swing voter – the voter who's ambivalent about legalizing marijuana and who you need to persuade in order to win legalization, the swing voter will vote to legalize to the extent they see this as being about control and about regulation. And once again, that's a group that's going to prefer big over small. Now, I'm very clear that I'd much rather see the marijuana industry evolve like a microbrewery industry or the vineyard industry. I tend to incline ideologically, as does most of Drug Policy Alliance, towards a small is beautiful model. So we're looking for those opportunities. But I have to say I'm not in a position to make any commitments to anybody on this stuff for the simple reason that you know I understand enough about the dynamic nature of, of capitalism in America. So while you've got your crystal ball out there, Ethan, what do you think is going to happen with um, these folks all across the country who've been set up and learned their business as medical marijuana producers, and then state by state, the they are not going to be allowed to participate anymore, and thus they will more, more than likely either shut down or divert to the black market. Do you think that we're going to see the DEA enforcing uh, against folks at the local level, or do you think they're going to keep their hands off and any kind of enforcement is going to be local county sheriffs? Well, I think the DEA is going to focus primarily on the bigger players operating outside of state law. I think the DEA is probably going to be inclined to collaborate with local law enforcement in terms of people operating without a license. Now, I also think that California, I'm hoping California will offer a model that will be more attuned to the sorts of things that you and I are talking about than we've seen in Washington State and some other states. Um, the other thing I would say, Shango, is I look at the, um, the history of alcohol, post-alcohol prohibition. After alcohol prohibition was repealed, tons of people who were involved in the industry, like the medical marijuana providers, growers are today, they tried to stay in, they tried to compete. Depending upon some places of America, they, they kept a hand in selling alcohol illegally for a decade or two decades. Ultimately, I think many of them were pushed out because consumers just – it was easier and simpler for them to go to a licensed outlet rather than buy from the neighbor who was making the, you know, the homebrew uh, in the backyard. And then I think there will be a phase once people have relaxed about these hyper-controls over supply, I think we'll begin to see the re- reemergence of the small growers down the road like we're seeing the microbreweries and the microdistilleries and things like that. That's my guess about the way it evolves. But I'm no expert in this industry, so I can't say for sure. (laughs) Right on. Well, thank you for that, Ethan. Well, believe it or not, that's all the time we have for today. Thanks for being on the show, Ethan. I'm really glad that you uh, were able to offer us some time, especially the day before um, they vote in Ohio. Well, well, thank you very much, you know, Shango, and good luck with everything on uh, Vashon Island and also in Washington State. Thank you. Ethan Nadelman is founder of the Drug Policy Alliance. You can find out more at drugpolicy.org. You can find more episodes of the Gontrepreneur podcast in the podcast section at gontrepreneur.com. You can also find us on the Cannabis Radio Network website and in the Apple iTunes store. On the gontrepreneur.com website, you will find the latest in cannabis news, product reviews, and cannabis jobs updated daily, along with transcriptions of this podcast. You can also download the gontrepreneur.com app in iTunes and Google Play. 
We're also thrilled to announce that you can now find the show on the iHeartRadio Network app, bringing Gontrepreneur to 60 million mobile devices. Thanks, as always, to Brasco for producing our show. I am your host, Shango Lose. Opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without proper consent of CannabisRadio.com is prohibited.